Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. You might or might not know the work of the philosopher, political theorist Leo Strauss. And um, it doesn't matter whether you know his work or not. He taught at the New School for a long time, longer than Hannah Arendt, actually. But we choose not to remember that episode. Leo Strauss makes a distinction, or distinction is operative in his work, between the exoteric and the esoteric. The exoteric, as it were, for everyone, and the esoteric for the few. And uh, he thinks that every major philosophical text from Plato's Republic onwards has an exoteric and esoteric dimension. Regardless of the truth of that um, distinction, I'm going to try and look at conscience in being in time in an exoteric and then in an esoteric um, version. So you get to choose the... um, Exoteric version, which will be kind of consoling superficiality, or the esoteric version, which will be a kind of a weird depth. Let's see if this works. I'm experimenting, obviously. So let's begin with the exoteric version of Heidegger on conscience. This will last probably 10 minutes. So, episode 12, Conscience, exoteric version. After the existential drama of Heidegger's notion of being towards death, why do we need a discussion of conscience? As so often in Being in Time, Heidegger insists that although his description of being towards death is formally or ontologically correct, it needs more compelling content at what he calls the uh, ontic level, the level of experience, in quotation marks, or, or exoteric version, no quotation marks. Finitude gets a grip on the self through the experience of conscience. Finitude gets a grip on the self through the experience of conscience. For me, The discussion of conscience contains the most exciting and challenging pages in Being in Time. Let me try and sketch the argument as simply as possible. Conscience is a call. Conscience is a call. It is something that calls one away from one's inauthentic immersion in the homely familiarity of everyday life. It is, Heidegger writes, that uncanny experience of something like an external voice in one's head that pulls one out of the hubbub, chatter, and twitter of life in the world and arrests our ceaseless busyness. This sounds very close to the Christian experience of conscience, synodesis, that one finds in St. Paul, St. Augustine, or indeed in Luther. In Book 8 of the Confessions, Augustine describes the entire drama of conversion 
in terms of hearing an external voice as of a child, Augustine says, that leads him to take up the Bible and eventually turn away from paganism and towards Christ. Luther describes conscience as the work of God in the mind of man. The work of God in the mind of man. Heidegger is pulling and pushing against Luther in this chapter. For Heidegger, by contrast, conscience is not God talking to me, but me talking to myself. The uncanny call of conscience, the pang and pain of its sudden appearance, feels like an alien voice. It feels like an alien voice, but it is, Heidegger insists, Dasein calling to itself. I'm called back from inauthentic life in the world, complete with what uh, Jean-Paul Sartre would call its counterfeit immortality. I'm called back from that towards myself. Furthermore, that self is, uh, as we saw in the last episode, the last discussion being towards death. So uh, that self is, is defined in terms of being towards death. So conscience is the experience of the human being calling itself back to its mortality, a little like Hamlet in the grave with Yorick's skull, Act 5, Scene 1 of Hamlet. What gets said in The Call of Conscience? Heidegger is crystal clear. Like Cordelia in Shakespeare's King Lear, nothing is said. The call of conscience is silent. It contains no instructions or advice. In order to understand this, it's important to grasp that for Heidegger, inauthentic life is characterized by chatter, idle talk. For example, the ever ambiguous hubbub of social media. Social media. Conscience calls Dasein back from this chatter, from this hubbub, silently. This call has the character of what Heidegger calls reticence, which is the privileged mode of language in uh, being in time, or a privileged mode of language in being in time, as we saw in chapter 5, division 1. So the call of conscience is a silent call that silences the chatter of the world and brings me back to myself. But what does this uncanny call of conscience give one to understand? Conscience's call can be reduced to one word. Guilty. Guilty. But what does Dasein's guilt really mean? It means that because, as we saw in earlier episodes, earlier lectures, it means that because the human being is defined in terms of throne projection, which we already know, throne projection, the human being always has its being to be. That is, human existence is a lack. It is something due to Dasein, a debt that it strives to make up 
or repay. This is the ontological meaning of guilt as schuld, S-C-H-U-L-D, schuld, which can also mean debt, not death, debt, D-E-B-T. As Heidegger, perhaps surprisingly right, although it writes, although it should be recalled that he was also writing during a time of troubled economic strife in Weimar, Germany, he says, life is a business, whether or not it covers its costs. Life is a business, whether or not it covers its costs. Debt is a way of being. I owe, therefore I am. That's really Heidegger's thought in this chapter. I owe, therefore I am. I'm indebted. I am guilty. Heidegger goes on to show that this ontological meaning of guilt as indebtedness is the basis for any traditional moral understanding of guilt. Heidegger's phenomenology of guilt, and here he is close to Nietzsche in the genealogy of morals, in particular the second essay of the genealogy, which in a sense is a subtext for the discussion of conscience, I think. Heidegger's phenomenology of guilt claims to uncover the deep structure of ethical selfhood, which cannot be defined by morality, since morality already presupposes it. Rejecting any Christian notion of evil as the privation of good, the privatio boni. Heidegger's claim is that guilt is the pre-moral source for any morality. Guilt is the pre-moral source for any morality. As such... It is, to coin a phrase, of course not to coin a phrase, it is beyond good and evil. So is guilt bad? No, but neither is it good. It is simply what we are. For Heidegger, we are guilty. Heidegger insists that Dasein does not load guilt onto itself like a bad superego. It simply is guilty. Always already, as Heidegger liked to say. What changes in being authentic is that the human being understands the call of conscience and takes it into itself. Authentic Dasein comes to understand itself as guilty. And in doing this, Dasein has chosen itself, as Heidegger writes, has chosen itself. This is very interesting. What is chosen is not having a conscience which Dasein already has because of its ontological want, its ontological indebtedness. What is chosen is, as Heidegger puts it rather awkwardly, wanting to have a conscience. What is chosen is wanting to have a conscience, gewissen haben wollen. That is, if you like, a second order wanting. I choose to want the want that I am. Only in this way, Heidegger adds, can the human being be answerable or responsible. The German there is verantwortlich, answerable or responsible. So responsibility, and this would be the key to any conception of ethics in relation to Heidegger's work, which is a moot point and something we could discuss at length in other contexts. Any conception of ethics for Heidegger consists in understanding the call 
in wanting to have a conscience. And to make this choice, Heidegger insists, to make this choice to choose to have a conscience, to want to have a conscience, is to become resolute. And the penultimate concept in this chapter, an important one, is resoluteness. So that is the exoteric version of what's going on in this chapter. I'm going to explain these concepts um, as we move on. But that's the exoteric. At this point, you could, uh, you could stop listening if you want. In a sense, that's enough to be going on with. But if you want to get the esoteric doctrine in Heidegger, the kind of weird stuff, then keep on listening. So let's now do exactly the same thing. I'm going to repeat what I said just now about conscience in a, in a philosophically deeper and more esoteric uh, mood. Ready? Okay. At times, reading a classical philosophical text is like watching an ice flow break up during global warming. The compacted, cold assurance of a coherent system begins to become liquid and great conceptual pieces break off before your eyes and begin to float free on the sea. To be a reader is to try and either keep one's footing as the ice breaks up or to fall in the icy water and drown. This is true. This feeling of an ice flow breaking up is true of every page of Heidegger's Being in Time. But it's nowhere truer than in the discussion of conscience in Division 2, which, to my mind, is the most interesting moment in Being in Time. I want to try, try and show where the ice flow of fundamental ontology begins to crack. At stake here, we'll be trying to bring the human, human being, us, Dasein, face to face with its uncanniness, with the utter strangeness of being human. And this is the thought, this is the esoteric thought in this chapter. We are the null basis being of a nullity. We are the null basis being of a nullity. A double zero suspended between two nothings. The null basis being of a nullity. Told you it was esoteric. As everyone who's read Being in Time is aware, what Heidegger is seeking to do in Division 2 is to find an authentic potentiality for being a whole. And this turns on the question of the self. If Dasein's inauthentic selfhood is defined in terms of das man, the they, and this is something over which I exert no choice because I'm uh, always falling into it, falling to it, then what Heidegger is after in chapter 2, division 2, is a notion of authentic selfhood defined in terms of choice. So I either choose to choose myself as authentic or I am lost in the choiceless publicness of Dasman. Heidegger's claim 
is that this potentiality for being a whole, for being authentic, is attested in the voice of conscience. Ontologically, conscience discloses something. It discloses Dasein to itself. On page 314, first quote here, on page 314, about third of the way into that page, he writes, if we analyze conscience more penetratingly, it's revealed as a call. A roof. Calling is a mode of discourse. The call of conscience has the character of an appeal to Dasein by calling it to its own most potentiality for being itself. And this is done by way of summoning it to its own most being guilty. 314. So, conscience is a call, a roof. And this call is a mode of erede, a mode of discourse, a silent call, as we will see. The call has the character of an anruf, an appeal, that is a summons or a convocation, aufruf, aufruf of Dasein to its own most being guilty. Heidegger is playing here with the different, different modalities, different prefixes of the word ruf, R-U-F in German. We will see in a little while what Heidegger means by guilt which is something closer to lack than any idea of moral guilt or culpability. And the idea of guilt as lack, which if we wanted to, we could make sense of in Lacanian terms, but I'm not going to insist on that. Heidegger insists that our understanding of this core, hearing this core, unveils itself as wanting to have a conscience wanting to have a conscience, gewissen haben wollen. Adopting this stance, making this choice, choosing to choose, this choosing to choose is the meaning of resoluteness or decidedness. The word in German is entschlossenheit, which has within it the idea of decision, entscheidung, being determined. Resoluteness is being determined, being decided, having a fixity of purpose. And that's the basic shape of the argument in Division 2, Chapter 2, and the terminology that Heidegger employs. Just laid that out in the last minute or so. Heidegger insists that the call of conscience calls one away from one's listening to the they-self, which is always described as listening away to the hubbub of ambiguity, idle talk, Instead, one listens to the call, the call that pulls one away from this hubbub to the silent and strange certainty of conscience. He says on page 316, it's a nice quote, the call, towards the bottom of page 316, the call is from afar unto afar. It reaches him who wants to be brought back. The call is from afar unto afar. It reaches him, wants to be brought back. It's a little, a little, perhaps, like Socrates' uh, daimon. 
his daimon, the voice that calls Socrates back at different points in the Platonic dialogues when he's um, given a bad speech or said some, something he regrets, like in the Phaedrus, he's then, his daimon says, go back and do better. That wasn't good enough. So it's a little bit like that, we could say. But calls to us, calls to Socrates from afar. To what is one called in being appealed to in conscience? One is called to one's own self. Conscience calls Dasein to itself in the call. What gets said in the call of conscience? Heidegger is crystal clear. Again, as I said before, in the exoteric version, like Cordelia in King Lear, nothing is said. Just stay with that thought for a tiny bit. Remember the scene at the beginning of King Lear when he's got his three daughters, Goneril, Regan and Cordelia, and they all have to pledge their love to the king that suddenly decided to stop being king and wants to kind of wander around with his retinue of a hundred partying. And uh, he asks Goneril and Regan how much they, Regan, how much they love him and they love him a lot. They get long florid speeches then he asks cordelia who he loves most how much do you love me what do you say cordelia and she says nothing my lord and leah says nothing nothing comes of nothing therefore speak and she says nothing my lord i cannot heave my heart into my mouth so a little like that so what does the call of conscience say nothing and there's a quote here, page 318, 318, uh, the, f the second full paragraph on 318, about um, 10 lines in. But how are we to determine, how, how are we to determine what is said in the talk that belongs to this kind of discourse? What does the conscience call to him to whom it appeals? Taken strictly, nothing taken strictly nothing. The call asserts nothing, gives no information about world events, has nothing to tell. Least of all, does it try to set going a soliloquy, in quotation marks, a soliloquy in the self to which it has appealed. Nothing gets called to this self, but it has been summoned to itself, that is, to its own most potentiality for being. 318. So the call contains no information, nor is it a soliloquy like the ever indecisive Danish Prince Hamlet endlessly soliloquizing from the first act until the end of the play. It is not that. It is the summoning of Dasein to itself that occurs silently. And this picks up on a remark where Heidegger writes on three 16, he says, vocal utterance is not essential for discourse. We've had that thought before. Vocal utterance is not essential for discourse, and therefore not for the call either. This must not be overlooked. So conscience discourses in the mode of silence. 
it discourses in and as reticence. And this idea of reticence, as we've seen, is given a privilege in the discussion of discourse in um, paragraph 34 of Being in Time. Reticence is the highest form of discourse. One says most in saying nothing. Pushing on a little bit into, uh, let's say, three, into paragraph 57, around 320. We now get into the logic of the call. So the call says nothing. What is the logic of the call? And this is an, a paradoxical logic. On the one hand, the call of conscience that pulls Dasein out of its immersion and groundless floating in the they is nothing else than Dasein calling to itself, calling to itself by saying nothing. It is not uh, God calling me. It is not my genes calling to me. It's not my nature calling to me. It's not my superego calling to me, my parents in my head calling to me. It is, to quote De La Soul, a uh, hip-hop classic, it is me, myself, and I. Me, myself, and I. As we will see, this logic becomes more complex. And he writes on page, uh, this is a long quote from page 320, 320, top of the page. He says, but is it at all necessary to keep raising explicitly the question of who does the calling? Is this not answered for Dasein just as unequivocally as the question of to whom the call makes its appeal? Then in italics, in conscience, Dasein calls itself. In conscience, Dasein calls itself. This understanding of the caller may be more or less awake in the factical hearing of the call. Ontologically, however, it is not enough to answer that Dasein is at the same time both the caller and the one to whom the appeal is made. When Dasein is appealed to, is it not there in a different way from that in which it does the calling? Shall we say that its own most potentiality for being itself functions as the caller? Continuing the quote, indeed the call is precisely something which we ourselves, we ourselves have neither planned nor prepared for nor voluntarily performed, nor have we ever done so. It calls against our expectations and even against our will. On the other hand, the call undoubtedly does not come from someone else who is with me in the world. The call comes from me and yet beyond me. The call comes, comes from me and yet beyond me. This is a very interesting passage. In German it's, uh, Der Ruf kommt aus mir, kommt aus mir und doch über mich. The call comes out of me and over me. And it's this idea of the call coming from beyond me which is so uncanny. It happens against my will and it's something that I do not voluntarily perform. Dasein is both the caller and the called. Dasein is both the caller and the called. And there is no immediate identity between these two sides or faces of the call. Get that? So the logic of the call is paradoxical. It's me calling to myself, yet it seems to come from beyond me. And there's no identity between these two aspects of the call. How do we explain this? How do we explain this division 
at the heart of the core of conscience. How do we explain this division at the heart of the core of conscience? And Heidegger also says on 326, this call of conscience, which everyone agrees that he hears, which everyone agrees that he hears. Does everyone agree? Does everybody hear the call of conscience? I think that's a, another discussion. He said, chickening out. So let's look at this division within the call. In order to explain this division within the call, Heidegger folds the analysis of the call structure back into the care structure. So the call structure is folded into the care structure. This is why chapter, paragraph 57 is called Conscience as the Call of Care. The situation of Dasein being both the caller and the called corresponds to the structure of Dasein as both authentic and inauthentic, as anxious potentiality for being or freedom, and, thro and thrown lostness in the day. That is, Dasein is both in the truth and in the untruth. We've seen this, right? Dasein is both disclosure and covered over, existential, factical, projecting and thrown. And this takes Heidegger back into a fascinating discussion of uncanniness, which first turned up in the discussion of anxiety in paragraph 40. Heidegger asks here, um, what if this Dasein that finds itself in the depths of its uncanniness, right? So what is uh, strange in the call of conscience is it's us calling to ourselves as if it were an alien voice, right? We become uncanny to ourselves. What if this Dasein that finds itself in the very depths of its uncanniness should be the caller of the call of conscience? And this leads us to the idea on 321 of what Heidegger calls the stranger voice or the alien voice, die fremde Stimme, fremde Stimme, the alien or stranger voice. And there's a lot we could uh, say about that. Again, it would be something, another topic, but this idea of the stranger voice is um, a topic which um, I think of in particular in relationship to Nietzsche, when Nietzsche is thinking about his own work in the 1886 prefaces to his work, where he talks about, although the, his early work, in his view, is terrible, because it's Wagnerian and Schopenhauerian and metaphysical, there is uh, an alien voice, a strange voice that somehow um, speaks in that work, and that when Nietzsche's reading himself, he can find himself in his own um, uncanniness. Anyway, Nietzsche is um, a shadow in this analysis, as I said. But going back to the text, uh, page 321, here's a quote. Heidegger says, In its who, the caller is definable in a worldly way by nothing at all. This is, this is a great quote, actually. This is the bottom of page 321. Um, so make sure you've, You've got your eyes on this because something interesting happens. In its who, the caller is definable in a worldly way by nothing at all. The caller is Dasein in its uncanniness, primordial, throne, being in the world, as the not at home. 
the bear that it is in the nothing of the world. The bear that it is in the nothing of the world. And in the um, German, nothing does not have quotation marks around it, as it does in Macquarie and Robinson. The bear that it is of the nothing of the world. The caller is unfamiliar to the everyday they self. It is something like an alien voice. What could be more alien to the they, lost in the manifold world of its concern, than the self which has been individualized down to itself in uncanniness and been thrown into the nothing? And again, nothing in the translation has got quotation marks. They're not there in the German. What might be noted here is the repeated emphasis upon the word nothing and the general strangeness of the claim that Heidegger makes. The call of conscience is the anxious uncanniness of not being at home in the homeliness or familiarity of the at-home quality of the world. But then this not at home is claimed to be the nothing of the world. The nothing of the world. Do you hear that? The self is thrown into the nothing of the world. And into that nothing, I hear the silent call that strikes me as alien. You begin to um, get the, the sense here that the, the being in the world, Dasein is being in the world, that we repeated over and over again in the first uh, discussions of the first division. This world full of significance, this world that hangs together this world which uh, we are in and which is there, suddenly becomes nothing. The self is thrown into the nothing of the world and into that nothing I hear the silent call that strikes me as alien and that call is also nothing. Strictly speaking, and this is the thought that I want to get at. This is the esoteric thought. The self is divided between two nothings. On the one hand, the nothing of the world, and on the other, the nothingness of pure possibility revealed in being towards death. Right? The nothing of the world and the nothing of pure possibility. The self is nothing, but the movement between two nothings the nothing of thrownness and the nothing of projection. Which is to say that the uncanniness of being human, being a stranger to oneself, consists in a double impotentialization. A double impotentialization. This is much more me than, than Heidegger. And I'll try and elucidate that in a little while. But just stay with this thought that the, um, what the call is revealing here is the nothing of the world, of our throne being in the world, and in relation to the nothing of the call. And between these two nothings, we hover. On page 322, Heidegger writes, 322, first full paragraph. The call does not report events. It calls without uttering anything. The call discourses in the uncanny mode of keeping silence. Discourses in the uncanny mode of keeping silence. And it does this only because in calling the one to whom the appeal is made, 
it does not call him into the public idle talk of the they, but calls him back from this into the reticence of his existent potentiality for being. When the caller reaches him to whom the appeal is made, it does so with a cold assurance which is uncanny but by no means obvious. Note the um, cold assurance of the appeal here. I rather like that. The kalter Sicherheit, the cold certainty uh, of the uncanny call. Uncanniness pursues Dasein down into the lostness of its life in the they. A life where it has forgotten itself and it tries to arrest this lostness in a movement that Heidegger will call in the next chapter of Being in Time, repetition. And we'll come back to that repetition. The thought here, which we, you can just, um, as it were, listen to at this point, we're going to have to live it in the next chapter, the next episode. It's only in the self's repetition to itself, of itself, that it can momentarily pull clear of the downward plunge of the they-self. It's only in repetition that this can happen. When the self ceases to repeat itself, it forgets and ceases to be itself. We are repetition. The three R's, the three R's, as the legendary Marquis Smith said, uh, of the mighty form. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Told you this was going to be weird. Heidegger completes this run of argument in the following way. This is on page 322. Same page, a bit further down. The proposition, it's the last paragraph on 322. The proposition that Dasein is at the same time both the caller and the one to whom the appeal is made has now lost its empty formal character and its obviousness. Conscience manifests itself as the call of care. Conscience is the call of care. The caller is Dasein, which in its throneness, in its being already in, is anxious about its potentiality for being. The one to whom the appeal is made is this very same Dasein, summoned to its own most potentiality for being, ahead of itself. Dasein is falling into the they, in being already alongside the world of its concern, and it is summoned out of this falling by the appeal. The call of conscience, that is conscience itself, has its ontological possibility in the fact that Dasein, in the very basis of its being, is care. Let that resonate a bit. The call of conscience is entirely intelligible in terms of the care structure. That is throne projection, falling, factical existence. Remember the three elements of care? Facticity, throneness, existence, projection, and falling. Idle talk, ambiguity, curiosity. We don't need any other powers uh, to explain conscience. We don't need to resort to God. Um, as in St. Paul or in Luther. 
we don't need to think about public conscience or world conscience. Heidegger deals with that and dismisses that in the final pages of paragraph 57. So what does the uncanny call give one to understand? Right? I said that question exactly like that before. What does conscience give us to think about? Conscience's core can be reduced to one word, and that one word is guilty. What does Dasein's guilt really mean? It means that because Dasein's being is thrown projection, it always has its being to be. That is, Dasein's being is a lack. Being is a lack. It's something due to Dasein, a debt that it strives to make up or repay. This is the ontological meaning of guilt as schuld, just said before, which means guilt, wrong, even sin, but it can also just mean debt. Right? To be schuldig, S-C-H-U-L-D-I-G, is to be guilty or blameworthy, but it also means to give someone their due, to be owing, to be in someone's debt. Why I'm emphasizing this line of thought is uh, I'm thinking here of Nietzsche's, the second essay of the genealogy of morals. And um, what Nietzsche does is to trace the idea of guilt, the for him, the Christian idea of guilt, for us, the secular idea of guilt that, you know, saturates the world that we live in. This idea of guilt, um, he traces back Nietzsche to uh, Schulden, to debts. And these Schulden have a material origin, he argues. And um, if you get interested in this topic, I have written on it elsewhere with my friend Tom McCarthy in relationship to Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, this was a long time ago, but it's work I'm uh, still proud of. The thought here is that life is a series of repayments on a loan that you didn't agree to, with ever-increasing interest and which will cost you your life. Life is a kind of death pledge, a mortgage, a mortgage. A mortgage is a death pledge. As Heidegger writes, as I said before, life is a business, whether or not it covers its costs. Debt is a way of being. Arguably, it is the way of being. And this is why credit and the credence in credit, the belief structure, is so important. So uh, I trace this in relationship to money. The key uh, concept in relationship to money is, uh, is credibility, is credit, is belief, which is always thought in relationship to, to debt a monetary debt. Okay, pulling out from that line of thought a little. Heidegger runs through various meanings of guilt, understood as having debts, being responsible for, or owing something or another, owing something to another. Although this re would require a separate discussion, it's fascinating to try and, uh, it's fascinating to watch Heidegger try and separate his conception of guilt from the usual concept of guilt as responsibility to others and from any idea of guilt understood in relation to law 
and in relationship to uh, the ought, right? the idea of a moral ought, the Kantian ought that um, someone like Hegel relentlessly criticizes and which Heidegger implicitly follows here. If we reduce morality to the ought and an ought which takes place in conscience, which is a kind of law court, juridical court in your head, then we're in a pretty terrible place. We're playing what Bernard Williams would call the morality game. Heidegger, of course, is trying to get at an ontological meaning of guilt and avoid the usual legal or moralistic connotations of the word. What he's aiming for, what he is aiming for, is a pre-ethical, a pre-moral understanding of guilt, or perhaps a, um, you know, originary ethical understanding of guilt, um, not the standard ethical, moral understanding of guilt. Can he do this? Let's follow him a little further into some of the weirdest passages in Being in Time. I would say maybe the weirdest passages in Being in Time. Here we go, full esoteric. Paragraph 58. And the paragraph I want to, the bit I want to draw your attention to is on page 340. So maybe flip ahead to uh, three, sorry, sorry, 330, 330, not 340, 330. This page, 330331, is really something you can read over and over again. It's fascinating. It seems obscure and strange, but it's actually just really deep. Dasein is, he says on page 330331, a throne basis. A throne basis. The word in German is ein geworfener Grund. And Grund, ground, has a wide range of meanings in German. It also means reason. Anyway, a throne basis. Dasein projects forth on the basis of the possibilities into which it has been thrown. This is also to say, as we will now see, that Dasein is a null basis, a null basis. And he writes, and the German is dense and difficult to render, but let's do our best. This is on page 330, middle of the page. It's really... Strange, rich, and powerful. And I quote at length. In being a basis, that is, in existing as throne, Dasein constantly lags behind its possibilities. It is never existent before its basis, but only from it and as this basis. Thus, being a basis means never to have power over one's own most being from the ground up. Being a basis means never to have power over one's being, almost being, from the ground up. This not belongs to the existential meaning of thrownness itself. Being a basis is a nullity of itself. Nullity does not signify anything like not being present at hand or not subsisting. What one has in view here is rather a not which is constitutive for this being of Dasein. It's thrownness. The character of this knot as a knot 
may be defined existentially. In being itself, Dasein is, as a self, the entity that has been thrown. It has been released from this basis, not through itself, but to itself, so as to be as this basis. Dasein is not itself the basis of its being, inasmuch as this basis first arises from its own projection. Rather, as being itself, it is the being of its basis. Wow. This is fascinating. The claim is that Dasein is a nullity of itself. Dasein understood as being a basis means that it does not have power over itself. Does not have power. Dasein is the experience of nullity with regard to itself. The potentiality for being a whole, which defines Dasein's power of projection, is revealed to be an impotentialization, a limit against which it runs and over which it has no power. And it's the impotence of Dasein that interests me here. And as we're going to see, it's a double impotence. So what we're seeing here is, you know, the way in which Heidegger is normally discussed is in terms of uh, potentiality, possibility, blah, blah, blah. But we see here potentiality bumping up against impotence. As a throne basis, Dasein constantly lags behind its possibilities. As he writes in that passage I just read, in being a basis, that is to say, existing as throne, in being a basis, that is, in existing as throne, Dasein constantly lags behind its possibilities. Dasein lags behind its possibilities. Yeah? Get that thought? The experience of guilt reveals the being of being human as a lack, as something wanting, as a lag. The self is not just the ecstasy of some heroic leap towards authenticity, energized by the experience of anxiety and being towards death. Such would be the heroic reading of the existential analytic. And that um, I possibly was Heidegger's intention, possibly. On that heroic reading, the goal of the existential analytic would be to achieve a kind of self-mastery, a self-sufficiency, what they uh, used to call in Greek autarkia, autarky, self-origination. This is what Heidegger calls in paragraph 64 that we'll get to Next time, self-constancy, self-constancy. Rather, on my view, the self's fundamental self-relation is to an unmasterable thrownness, the burden of a facticity that weighs me down without my ever being able to fully pick it up. This is why I seek to evade myself. I project or throw off a thrownness that catches me in its throw and inverts the movement of possibility by shattering it against impotence. 
I'm always too late to meet my fate. For those with ears to hear, that's a rather arrogant Nietzschean way of putting it, for those with, with, for those with ears to hear, this is a reading of Nietzsche that's perhaps closer to Beckett than to um, the standard kind of heroic Nietzsche. A Beckettian disability. Uh, the characters in Beckett are always kind of uh, in bed or they can't walk or they used to ride bikes but they can't anymore and they're shoved like a, uh, a bunch of flowers into a jar in the, the shambles in the bad side of town outside an abattoir trying to concentrate on the rump of a horse. For example, Dasein to return to my main thought, Dasein is a being suspended between two nothings. That's the thought. Dasein is a being suspended between two nothings, two nullities. The nullity of thrownness and the nullity of projection. And this is where the text gets really, really radical. So hang on. Hang on there. This is page 331. And it begins on... Begins on uh, three, three, one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine lines in. Long quote. Not only is the projection as one that has been thrown determined by the nullity of being a basis, as projection, it is itself essentially null. This does not mean that it has the ontical property of inconsequentiality or worthlessness. What we have here is rather something existentially constitutive for the structure of the being of projection. The nullity we have in mind belongs to Dasein's being free for its existential possibilities. Freedom again. We saw that at the end of the Being Towards Death chapter. Freedom, however, continuing the quote, 331, freedom, however, is, is only in the choice of one possibility, that is, in tolerating one's not having chosen the others and one's not being able to choose them. In the structure of thrownness, as in that of projection, there lies essentially a nullity. This nullity is the basis for the possibility of inauthentic Dasein in its falling. And as falling, every inauthentic Dasein factically is Care itself, in its very essence, is permeated with nullity through and through. Thus care, Dasein's being, means, as thrown projection, being the basis of a nullity. Being the basis of a nullity. And this being the basis is itself null. This means that Dasein, as such, is guilty. If our formerly existential definition of guilt as being the basis of a nullity is indeed correct. Fantastic quotation. The, uh, the noise you can hear on the street there is, I should stop um, and pick it up in a second because this is the uh, cheering and hooting and everything for the, the health workers and the people giving essential services and that's really important in this Awful time in New York. Maybe you can hear them outside. 
I should be there. I didn't realize. Anyway, I'm back in a second, okay? Okay, I'm back. So that quote on 331 that I read out is one of the wildest parts in being in time, if not the wildest. What does it tell us? I think it tells us the following. Dasein is a double nullity. It is simultaneously constituted and divided around this double nullity. And this is the structure of throne projection and the ontological meaning of guilt. That is, Dasein is guilty. It is indebted doubly. It is null at the heart of its being. Dasein is essentially doubly lacking. Okay, so what I've emphasized throughout these um, episodes, these lectures, is the idea of Dasein as throne projection. But what does throne projection mean? Well, he tells us in this passage I just read on 331, throne projection is the null basis being of a nullity. The null basis being of a nullity. Das nichtige Grundsein eine Nichtigkeit. And this is nothing less than the experience of freedom. As Heidegger writes, freedom is the choice of one possibility of being in choosing oneself and not the others. But what one is choosing in such a choice is the nullity of a projection that projects on the nullity of a throne basis over which one has no power. Right? Nullity of a projection projecting onto the nullity of a throne basis over which one has no power, behind which one is always lagging. Freedom is the assumption of one's ontological guilt, of the double nullity that one is. Heidegger goes on to show that this existential ontological meaning of guilt is the basis for any traditional moral understanding of guilt. Heidegger's phenomenology of guilt, like Nietzsche's in the genealogy of morals, claims to uncover the deep structure of ethical subjectivity, which cannot be defined by morality, as I said earlier, because morality already presupposes it. He rejects Heidegger, any notion of evil as the privation of good. Heidegger's claim is that guilt is the pre-moral source for any morality. Got that guilt, as he understands it, this double nullity, this double nothingness of thrownness and projection, which is the experience of freedom, is the pre-moral source for any morality. It's beyond good and evil. Is guilt bad? No. But neither is it good. It's simply what we are. We are guilty. Such is Kafka's share of eternal truth. Now think about this in relation to Kafka. The characters in Kafka trial are guilty. Their being is defined um, in this way. They are lacking with regard to themselves. They are people about whom lies have been told. Joseph Kane. Heidegger brings a large number of themes discussed in the the last few minutes together in an enormously powerful way. And we come back again to the question of uncanniness 
and this is another long quote, the last, uh, the last long quote for a while, uh, on page 332, 333, 332, 333. The last words on 332, I want to pick up from there. The call is the call of care. Right? The call is the call of care. Being guilty constitutes the being to which we give the name of care. In uncanniness, Dasein stands together with itself primordially. Uncanniness brings this entity face to face with its undisguised nullity, which belongs to the possibility of its own most potentiality for being. To the extent that, for Dasein as care, its being is an issue, it summons itself as a they which is fatically falling and summons itself from its uncanniness from its uncanniness towards its potentiality for being. The appeal calls back by calling forth. It calls Dasein forth to the possibility of taking over in existing, even that throne entity which it is. It calls Dasein back to its throneness, to us to un- so as to understand this throneness as the null basis which it has to take up into existence. This calling back, in which conscience calls forth, gives Dasein to understand that Dasein itself, Dasein itself, the null basis for its null projection, standing in the possibility of its being, is to bring itself back to itself from its lostness in the they. And this means that it is guilty. Strong stuff, right? There's an awful lot going on here. Guilt has been shown to be the innermost meaning of care. It's very movement, it's kinesis. Here and indeed elsewhere in his work, Heidegger is simply trying to think movement, kinesis, as the rhythm of existence and ultimately the rhythm of being itself. Being itself has a rhythm, a rhythm of uh, a bivalent rhythm of um, giving and withholding, appropriation and disappropriation. This movement, which is the movement of throne projection, or what I prefer to call throne throwing off, this movement is the structure of the call, which calls back by calling forth. It calls Dasein forth to take over its potentiality for being by taking it back to its throneness and taking it over. Dasein is this movement back and forth, a movement that's based on nothing, a double nothing. No metaphysics, no ground, no basis, just us. Look closely at Heidegger's words. Dasein is the null basis for its null projection. Dasein is a double nothing, a double zero. And this is the meaning of throne projection. Guilt is the movement, the kinesis of this nullity, a movement back and forth, a movement to and fro, as Beckett would say. A lot of Beckett's late plays are about simple movement, back and forth, like someone in a rocking chair, rocking back 
and forth like in rockabye or walking up and down. Such is the strangeness of what it means to be human. The uncanniness of being brought face to face with ourselves. As Heidegger writes in the introduction to metaphysics, Dasein is the happening of strangeness. Amazing. Dasein is the happiness, happiness, sorry. Dasein is the happening of strangeness. The human being is the utter strangeness of action between two nothings. The self is a potentiality for being whose sole basis, limit, and condition of possibility is a double impotentialization, which of course is to say that it is also a condition of impossibility, an existential quasi-transcendental. Again, I told you this was going to be really esoteric. I don't think what I'm saying is perfectly clear, at least to me. But the self, what Heidegger is describing here, are the conditions of possibility for being a self, right? And conditions of possibility talk is transcendental argumentation. Being in time is transcendental philosophy, identifying the a priori structures of existence, because our being is existence. But those conditions of possibility bump up against impossibility, impotentialization at both ends. So you see that the, so the conditions of possibility are also conditions of impossibility. And this is um, the modification of the concept of the transcendental from the um, straightforward Kantian idea that philosophy is about identifying the conditions of possibility for X to the more Deridian idea that deconstruction is about identifying conditions of possibility for X and conditions for, of the impossibility for X at the same time. And we have to learn to stay with that movement. Where this takes us, I think it takes us to an interesting place, is to an idea of weakness. That rather than seeing weakness as a signal of something poor or something, you know, as opposed to strength, which is better, I think what Heidegger is pushing towards here is an idea of impotence or an idea of weakness that's more important than uh, the potency of heroic Dasein. Weakness is the brand, as the great, my favorite female comedian, Maria Bamford, would say. Weakness is the brand. I may be mental, she says, but I'm a millionaire. But I digress. But watch some stand-up by Maria Bamford if for some crazy reason you haven't. Heidegger insists that Dasein does not load guilt onto itself. It is in its being already guilty. Dasein is guilty, always already. What changes in being authentic is that Dasein understands the call or appeal of conscience and takes it into itself. Dasein as authentic comes to understand itself as guilty, which means that Dasein as potent comes to understand itself as impotent. In doing this, Dasein has somehow chosen itself. As Heidegger says, er hat sich selbst gewählt. 
This is very interesting. What is chosen is not having a conscience. We have conscience by virtue of being Dasein. What is chosen is wanting to have a conscience. This is where the chapter, wanting to have a conscience. This is a second order wanting. Uh, to want the want that one is, right? To want the lack that one is. He says on page uh, 334, rounding out this paragraph and this strange, I think extraordinary line of thought in paragraph 58. He says, wanting to have a conscience is rather the most primordial existential presupposition for the possibility of factically coming to owe something. So that's three, three, four in the um, two-thirds of the way down the page. Wanting to have a conscience. In understanding the call, Dasein lets its own most self take action in itself in terms of that potentiality for being which it has chosen. Only so can it be answerable. Verantwortlich. So, answerability, responsibility, which would be the key to any ethics, any morality. But here we're dealing with a kind of pre-moral morality, a pre-ethical ethics. Answerability, responsibility consists in understanding the call, in wanting to have a conscience. This choice, Dasein's choice of itself, is, in Heidegger's strange phrasing here, is taking action in itself. Taking action in itself. Action. Heidegger reminds us uh, later on, this is in the um, letter on humanism that he wrote after the um, Second World War, the invitation of um, the French reader of his work, Jean Beaufray. Um, he says in the, I think the first words of the letter on humanism, we are still far from pondering the essence of action decisively. We are still far from pondering the essence of action decisively. The word action is one that Heidegger both uses in being in time and continually reminds us that he wants to avoid. Such is the logic of Heidegger's avoidances. We always have to watch what he's doing when he says he's going to avoid a word, and then sometime later in the book we find him using it. But what might action mean, conceived in relationships, the double nullity we have described? What might potentiality for being mean when its condition of possibility and impossibility is a double impotentialization. Well, that's what we, I hope to work out in a fuller interpretation of Heidegger. But this conception of action might be called tragic. It might be called tragicomic. Uh, it's what Beckett calls Waiting for Godot, a tragicomedy. And um, as one of Beckett's gallery of moribunds, Molloy asks himself, tongue deep in his cheek, from where did I get this access of vigor? From my weakness, perhaps. 
from where did I get this access of vigor from my weakness, perhaps? Well, that concludes the esoteric part. Now I've got um, two more things to do before we finish this already overly long episode. But it's great stuff and it never ceases to, to, to get me this, uh, this discussion of conscience. There's two concepts we haven't discussed which come up at the end of the chapter in paragraph 60. Resoluteness and situation. Resoluteness and situation. So here we are, um, the last pages of chapter two from around three, four, one onwards. Resoluteness is the authentic structure of Dasein, the truth of Dasein, the truth of existence. And he formulates it on um, 343. He says, middle of the page on 343, the disclosedness of Dasein in wanting to have a conscience is thus constituted by anxiety, a state of mind, by understanding as a projection of oneself upon one's almost being guilty, and by discourse as reticence. Look at the three existentials, state of mind, understanding, discourse. This distinctive and authentic disclosedness, which is attested in Dasein itself by its conscience, this reticent self-projection upon one's almost being guilty in which one is ready for anxiety, we call resoluteness. Resoluteness means, as I said much earlier, means decidedness, having fixity of purpose, becoming resolved, determined, where entschließen um, means to, to make up one's mind. So resolute Dasein understandingly projects onto its possibilities in the mood of anxiety. And note here that Heidegger reintroduces or keeps bringing back, you know, this gone very far away, the idea of anxiety. And you'll speak here of um, anxiety of conscience, uh, gewissen angst. That's on the middle of page 342. Anxiety of conscience. Where wanting to have a conscience is a readiness for anxiety. But anxiety is nothing anguished, right? It's articulated discursively as reticence. That is where I pull away from the loud chatter of the they self into, and I move into silence. Anxiety is the, um, the mark or proof of the, the calling. Right? Anxiety is the mark or proof of the calling. I could say a lot more about this in relationship to the experience of uh, faith as I understand it. And I begin from uh, someone like St. Paul here uh, rather than you know, warm, fuzzy feelings of faith, some kind of you know, belief in some certainty. I mean, that's not what faith is about. Faith is the anxiety. It's the subjective mark or proof of the calling, the way... Uh, the calling faith is felt is as anxiety, that the proper disposition for Paul of someone being in Christ is to remain in an anguished waiting. And the anguished waiting is itself the induction into a kind of uh, stillness in the self, not a um, 
you know, restful stillness, but a, a kind of resolute stillness. Look, look at the um, top of page 343. Only in keeping silent does the conscience call. That is to say, the call comes from the soundlessness of uncanniness. And the Dasein which it summons is called back into the stillness of itself and called back as something that is to become still. Only in reticence, therefore, is this silent discourse understood appropriately in wanting to have a conscience. It takes the words away from the common sense idle talk of the they. So conscience calls in silence, and this summons calls one back to stillness, becoming still. It's a theme that you could plot in Heidegger's later work. He's quoting things like um, the ringing stillness. I think it's Stefan Georga or someone else. For me, it's a kind of um, stillness that you can find in kind of musical forms of stillness. I think about that soundlessness of uncanniness in relationship to the stillness of, say, certain forms of ambient music. Harold Budd, Brian Eno, or favorite act of mine, a favorite band of mine from, I think, from Austin, Texas, called Stars of the Lid, uh, who have done amazing work. Anyway, to move on, resoluteness is that. Resoluteness is that becoming stillness in oneself, taking into oneself decidedly the experience of uh, conscience. Let's finish with the idea of situation. This concept of situation introduced on page 345 very quickly at the end of the, sorry, 346. It's a very um, important concept. What is Heidegger trying? Because it's a concept which you can find picked up in, in Sartre, uh, in a whole number of other thinkers. I'll mention one more in a second. Let's close with the idea of situation. Resoluteness is always resoluteness at some particular time. Right? This is not a question of eternity here. We're dealing with a temporal being that is in time and for its time. So upon what does Dasein resolve? For what is Dasein authentic? This partially answers an old objection that can be made against um, existential philosophy, whose originator is Heidegger. You know, the idea of commitment that comes up more in a more popular way in in Sartre. You know, you're committed, but, you know, what are you committed to exactly, apart from just being committed in general? So commitment risks becoming, commitment as resoluteness risks becoming an abstraction. So so Heidegger is partially answering that in these these last paragraphs. Dasein resolves upon what is factically possible at its time. Otherwise said... Fantastic phrase on page three, four, five. He says, resoluteness appropriates untruth authentically. Resoluteness appropriates untruth authentically. That is, resoluteness is the is in the, the irresoluteness of the they. 
but it does not acquiesce in that untruth, but appropriates it authentically. It makes their decision my decision. The time and place that resolute Dasein seizes hold of is situation. Situation. He says, last words on page 345, even resolutions which remain dependent upon the they in its world. The understanding of this is one of the things that a resolution discloses in as much as resoluteness is what first gives authentic transparency to Dasein. In resoluteness, the issue for Dasein is its own paternal. I'm going to lose some of this quote. Let's just go to the end of this uh, first paragraph on page 346. The existential attributes for any of any possible resolute Dasein include the items constitutive for an existential phenomenon which we call a situation and which we have hitherto passed over. Situation, as he says immediately on 346, um, is a spatial term. It's an idea of situation as a space, as a location. So the idea here, which is uh, an important idea, is rather than emptily drifting in the spatiality of being in the world, average everydayness, I seize hold of that space authentically in a situation, right? Do you get this thought? It's an important thought. We have an idea of space as a space of average everyday being in the world, which is characterized by deseverance and directionality, all that good stuff that we saw in um, Division 1, Chapter 3. But here we get, with the idea of situation, the idea, the claim that we could authentically seize hold of space and turn it into something that is ours. I think this is the way Sartre will pick up the idea of, of situation. And it's also the way in which um, Alain Badiou will, I think, adapt the idea of situation into his concept of the event. Right? An event is something which we are, which where we possess a place, uh, where one lives, where one lives, where one loves, where one, uh, where one is. And rather than just experiencing that space as just where one happens to have ended up or where one happens to have been factically thrown, one can seize hold of that, um, that place as a situation, as an event. So by contrast, the they-self has no situation. The they-self is just kind of adrift in uh, average everydayness. And this leads to an important and interesting conclusion Namely, that resoluteness is not some empty truth of the quote-unquote transcendental subject. Resoluteness is the name for a specific engagement in a concrete and specific situation. Right? We're being pulled into a situation. And look at this quote. This is the last quote I'll give you. Almost the penultimate quote I'll give you. It's a really good one. He says on page 347, two-thirds of the way down the page, 
the phenomenon which we have exhibited as resoluteness can hardly be confused with an empty habitus. Habitus there is a mode of life or an indefinite velleity. Velleity means an, a, a mere wish or, or a, an inclination, a, de, a wish, desire, or inclination. can hardly be confused with an empty mode of life or an indefinite wish. Resoluteness does not first take a cognizance of a situation and put that situation before itself. It has put itself into that situation already. As resolute, Dasein is already taking action. The term take action is one which we are purposely avoiding. For in the first place, this term must be taken so broadly that activity will also embrace the passivity of resistance. In the second place, it suggests a misunderstanding in the ontology of Dasein as if resoluteness were a special way of behavior belonging to the practical faculty as contrasted with one that is theoretical. So, Dasein does not present itself with a situation and then act within it. Dasein is already taking action. Although, again, note the logic of Heidegger's avoidances he wants to avoid the notion of activity. Also notice that fascinatingly teasing remark about the passivity of resistance. Of course, resistance is not just passive, right? To resist is to resist, even if you're not, um, even just, you know, the way you think of, you know, Bartleby the Scrivener, there's a passive resistance, but it's still a resistance. He's still doing something. But Heidegger doesn't want to insert that idea of situation into a simple activity-passivity distinction or a theory-practice distinction. Okay, so with that, here we are, end of the chapter, 348. We've done the work, we've brought home the bacon. With that, we've completed the Dasein analytic. We should pat ourselves on the back. We have achieved, uh, firstly, an understanding of uh, being a whole. Being that's, that's going to be that's answered with being towards death, and we've answered the question of authenticity, which is given to us in conscience. What we have to do now is to bring together those two two concepts to cut to the chase. The analysis of being towards death. Uh, led to the concept of anticipation. The analysis of conscience led to the idea of resoluteness. What Heidegger is going to do in the next chapter, the beginning of the next chapter, and then really the existential analytic is kind of done, and there are some methodological reflections, some other things before we go on into another fascinating kind of spin of the um, analysis is to bring together anticipation and resoluteness into an idea of anticipatory resoluteness, which is going to define the being of Dasein. And that's kind of where we end. We could also say more about the idea of situation, but um, I want to come back to that later on in the lectures. So that's it. That was a long one. 
you've had the exoteric, you've been through the esoteric interpretations of conscience, and then we've ended up with the ideas of resoluteness and situation. So thank you very much, and I'll speak to you next time. Bye-bye.